Good evening, and welcome to the second installment of Sage on Stage. My name is Chuck Cassidy. I'm chair of the orthopedic department at Tufts Medical Center and a member of the AO uh, North America Hand Education Committee. And our uh, guest, Sage, uh, this evening is Dr. Peter Stern. Peter is an icon in orthopedics. Uh, as we all know, he's past president of the ABOS, the Hand Society, and AOA, the deputy editor of JBJS and uh, chair of the orthopedic department at Cincinnati for 22 years. An amazing educator and a wonderful person. I will be trying to extract pearls of wisdom from Peter and uh, Jeff is in the background behind the scenes. Uh, Jeff Lawton will be answering uh, questions uh, um, that you may pose uh, during the session. Disclosure is listed. So Peter, you're ready. I'm ready, go for All right. it. Question number one, we're gonna go through, I think some trauma and some reconstructive, some arthritis and some other things. Question number one, do you pronounce it Keenbox or Kindbox? None of the above. It's, uh, I, I say Keenbox, uh, it's, it's, this is really pedantic, but uh, if you're writing an article, it's supposed to be just K-I-E-N-B, with an umlaut over the O K with no apostrophe S on it. They've, they've gotten rid of that, but I say Keenbach disease. The, ap so, the apostrophe is not appropriate any longer. I agree with you. Here's the first case. Uh, she is a 40 year old female homemaker. She's had several years of wrist pain, has worn, uh, worn a splint uh, without much relief. How do you tackle this? Okay, well, for, obviously, uh, we want to do a, a history and physical, and then uh, I would imagine she's got a small amount of swelling and tenderness over the lunate. She probably has uh, reduced uh, range of motion of her wrist or forearm range of motion is fine. Uh, then I would uh, look at the x-rays, and this is a fairly clear-cut uh, case of Keenbach. Uh, there's a negative ulnar variance, which we see in about 80% of patients with Keenbach disease. And she has uh, what appears to be a very fragmented, fragmented uh, lunate, multiple fractures. The typical fracture in Keenbach disease is a, usually a horizontal fracture in the coronal plane. Uh, but her, her lunate looks like it's dusted. Uh, in addition to that, there appears to be a modest amount of carpal collapse. That is the proximal surface of the uh, capitate is migrating into the lunate fossa, the distal radius. Interestingly, if I'm reading the x-ray correctly, her scapoid does not appear significantly uh, flex, which is a little unusual, but her, her lunate is uh, absolutely uh, shattered. I agree with you. Um is this enough information for you? Would you like to consider any ancillary studies? Uh, so interestingly, I probably would not get any additional studies. Uh, the, the question would be always in Keenbach disease, is this, can you preserve the lunate or uh, are you at a stage when it should be salvaged? And uh, although I've seen the case, my, my preference would be uh, towards a salvage uh, procedure. I don't think that this uh, lunate is uh, salvageable. I agree with you. So she came to me with, uh, with this MR. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, you can see the fracture. There are actually several fracture lines you can see in the axial and, uh, and the sagittal images. And I just, so, I, I wanna point out uh, one other thing, Chuck. If you look in the lower right at the, uh, sagittal image, it's a great uh, image showing an increase in what's called the stall index. Normally, uh, the transverse uh, width of the lunate to the height is one to two, but here the capitate is like a nutcracker into the uh, lunate fossa and the, uh, <clears throat> the lunate is uh, markedly elongated, it's, it's squished. It certainly is. Um, you said you don't routinely obtain these studies, and I don't either. Uh, but interestingly, this gave me some uh, pause and cause for concern uh, yeah. on, on this uh, coronal image. You can see 
that there is some signal change in the proximal uh, portion of the capitate, the head of the capitate. Definitely, that's, that's very useful. In addition to that, as you know, there's, uh, there's a Lickman classification, uh, and uh, more recently, probably within the last five years, and I'm not an arthroscopist, but uh, Greg Bain, a very talented surgeon from Australia, has an arthroscopic classification where uh, he will look at the look at the condition of not only the lunate but the hyaline cartilage and presence of degenerative changes and fractures. I think that you can get almost as much uh, information with the uh, 3D study or with the uh, MR study, which you're showing. Um, do you use an interposition material, capsule, anything uh, yep. in cases where the head of the capitate doesn't look good? Uh, so if I was doing, so for example, if I was doing a proximal carpectomy? Yes. Yeah. So uh, good question. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, but the secondary answer, I don't think it does much. So if you look at x-rays in the operating room, if you've done, for example, a capsule interposition, and I have no experience with resurfacing the head of the capitate with an implant or with an osteoarticular graft, but if you look at the x-rays, you see a great space between the head of the capitate and lunate facet to the distal radius, and then they come back two months later and it's gone. So I think it's a little hocus, hocus, hocus. Uh, Dick Eaton, actually, when he did proximal carpectomies, when there was arthritis on the head of the capitate, would take a saw and take the most proximal one to two millimeters of the hamate and then just cut across perpendicular uh, to the wrist and, and cut the uh, uh, proximal hamate, uh, proximal capitate, uh, all the way across and uh, then do a capsular interposition. But I, I don't think they do a lot except treat us, but I do do them. All right. Um, interestingly, uh, she had Keenbach on her uh, other side uh, and was treated uh, 12 years earlier uh, by my mentor, uh, Dr. Ruby. Um, and she's doing fairly well. You can see that her lunate is not in great shape. Um, is a, a, a radial shortening an option for uh, for her right wrist? In my in my hands, probably probably not. It, 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 I, I got to say, it's amazing with Keenbach, and I'm sure everybody who's done any Keenbach surgery would agree. There is so much hocus pocus in terms of the surgeries that uh, it's it's uh, from non-operative treatment. There are many papers in the literature that. I would suggest that non-operative treatment for someone like this, for example, uh, six to eight weeks in a short arm cast followed by, you know, a removable splint and then let them go. They do very well. There's one actually from the Mayo Clinic. There's a Scandinavian series and others, two very, you know, different types of aggressive surgery. Many years ago, uh, we used to replace the lunate with, a, with an implant, but uh, silicone uh, or actually tight, there were some titanium implants for a while, but those have completely fallen by the wayside because of wear debris, et cetera. Speaking of hocus pocus, uh, is there any role for any of these options? Uh, arthroscopy, you mentioned, and I did uh, scope, this is not that patient, but I did scope a patient after uh, speaking with Greg Bain. <laughs> uh, metaphyseal uh, decompression, core decompression, or posterior and or anterior interosseous neurectomy? So uh, I think it's in terms of arthroscopy, I, th I think certainly I think, uh, or Greg would have you think that it's a reasonable thing to do. I, I think that as you demonstrated, your MR showed degenerative changes on the head of the capitate. There was also a little bit of a decreased signal on the uh, proximal pole, the hamate. Uh, so, and, and I'm not, I'm quite frankly, not an arthroscopist. So I think it's, it's reasonable in terms of staging and selecting treatment, but uh, it's not something that I feel skilled enough that, that I would do, but I have no objections to it. In terms of AIN, PIN, uh, neurectomy, uh, it's, it's a very, very uh, popular uh, procedure. Uh, Dick Berger from Mayo Clinic a number of years ago for all kinds of conditions in the wrist, 
uh, did AIN, PIN neurectomies with a uh, prior uh, test of lidocaine just proximal to the DRUJ. And I believe uh, between 65 and 70% of the patients for the length of follow-up, which I can't remember, did pretty well. So it, it's, always, it's always something that you can do. I, I see no downside. I've never seen a, a wrist that uh, discombobulated uh, a Charcot wrist or anything like that. I cannot, uh, Jesse Jupiter always knows the name of the person who did the radius osteotomy and uh, decompression uh, scraping uh, beneath the lunate facet of the distillatus from either Argentina or Brazil starts with an A, I think. I'm embarrassed, yeah. but... Ilaramendi. Yeah, yes, Aramendes. At any rate, uh, I've had, uh, you know, level five evidence, limited experience with this, three cases. Uh, one did okay, one did really well, and the third one was miserable and went to another doctor. I don't, I don't want to see Dr. Stern again. Uh, the concept is that you evoke a focal hyperemia uh, around the uh, lunate, and it, it mysteriously uh, comes alive again. The problem is that the nutrition for the hyaline cartilage, the lunate, is synovial diffusion and the bone uh, gets its gets its blood supply obviously uh, from <clears throat> various perforating uh, vessels either from the dorsal lip fuller lip or both the so-called Geberman Gelberman X Y and I patterns so interestingly her mother had keen buck as well bilaterally and I treated her with proximal oral carpectomies and she was happy with that uh, but this patient wanted to try to avoid any extensive surgery. And so I did a lidocaine a test. She got great relief. Um, I did posterior enterosis neurectomy and uh, didn't help. So she ended up with, with this. So uh, as, you've, as you've told us, these patients will develop radiographic arthritis. Uh, how do you counsel your patients? You mean in terms of what? Uh, what do you expect long-term? Okay, well, it, uh, some of it depends on the, on the etiology, the reason that you're doing it, whether it's a slack wrist or Keenbach in, in this case. Uh, our, we actually, Lindley Wall, who is a fellow with us, looked up uh, our results at a minimum of 20 years following proximal carpectomy. I've been a uh, big fan of this operation. And about two thirds of the patients after 20 years uh, still had their carpectomized wrist. About a third of them had gone on to a total wrist fusion. As you alluded to, there's really no correlation between the radiograph uh, that is narrowing between the uh, head of the capitate and lunate to set to the distal radius and, and how the patient does. I tell them all that they will not increase their range of motion. I tell them uh, that uh, their grip strength will probably not increase or maybe a little bit. But overall, I think carpectomy is a, is a reasonably good operation. We've uh, had, <clears throat> we've published several papers on this topic and there may be a correlation between age and how they do and somewhere between the ages of 35 and 40, uh, probably particularly in a working person, you, you might select another option. Would you like to disclose what that option would be? Uh, so in Keenbach, I mean, it would, it would depend. It would probably end up in Keenbach. In that case, say the patient was 25 or 30 years old, I would, and a working man, I would think very uh, strongly about doing a total wrist fusion. I don't think there's any place for wrist arthroplasty uh, in, in young people. But that's based more on a, a referral practice where I've, just seen uh, a lot of disasters from wrist arthroplasties. I do think wrist arthroplasties are recent procedures in older patients. Uh, if my picture was on the screen, I don't know if it is or not. Uh, that would be the kind of patient maybe for an arthroplasty or a rheumatoid, but certainly not not a young active person. It would Wise guy. My mentor, yeah. Dr. Ruby, would say, do the last operation first. Yeah, that's extremely well put, and he was a wonderful, wonderful person. I, I love Len Ruby. Well, hopefully we'll get to his paper in a little bit. Okay, 
Number two, you know the answer, the four most popular letters in hand surgery, L-R-T-I. So with that in mind, we'll present this patient. This patient has basal or thumb pain, no, no tricks here, has um, had a, a splint, splinting and a couple of injections that provide her with temporary relief, but no longer uh, beneficial. Um, and how old is she, Chuck? She is a 42-year-old oh, nurse. Okay. Yeah, so uh, she's, you know, she's miserable and she wants an operation. You've treated her conservatively. And again, uh, no tricks here. Uh, I would, uh, I don't see, and I'm not trying to be obnoxious, a really good uh, bets view, but I, and my guess would be, you know, that this is a so-called Eaton or Eaton Glickle stage two CMC arthritis, that is, uh, there uh, may be loose bodies or osteophytes less than uh, two millimeters. There's a little subluxation. I can't see the MP joint. And one thing uh, for those that are listening that I would mention, I think it's really important that you look at the MP joint when you're considering surgery on a patient with basal joint arthritis. And if there's considerable hyperextension, and I can't give you the exact number, you ought to think about either doing an MCP fusion or uh, a capsulodesis. And I can go into that in more detail if you want, but it may be a waste of time. So let's assume that her MP joint is not hyperextended, and it, she's got you know, 10, 15 degrees of compensatory hyperextension, I would pass on it. Let's assume that her STT joint and trapezial second metacarpal joint are intact. We're, we're left with a patient that has stage two osteoarthritis. Yeah, uh, I've always had trouble with the two versus three. I think one and four are pretty clear. Two and three, oftentimes when you operate on the patient, uh, it's the it's ebernated bone, you know, regardless yeah. of... You're, you, are, you are dead on, uh, we, we actually wrote, there are tons of papers on that very, you know, looking at in, inter and intra-observer errors, looking at <clears throat> the basal joint. And you're, we, we published a paper a number of years ago, and two and three didn't do too well. The kappa values were quite good for uh, one and four but two and three a little bit interchangeable. I, I'd have to go with the two here. So this is, this is relatively early uh, osteoarthritis and your choices for early osteoarthritis, uh, again, would be your favorite four letters, uh, LRTI or some variant. The key in this is I think everybody knows is removing the trapezium, whether or not you suspend it, whether or not you do some type of interposition, I think is dealer's choice. But the literature uh, would certainly suggest that trapeziectomy is the key to the procedure and whatever else you do uh, is probably uh, dealer's choice and very probable unnecessary. I personally feel that implants, which are extremely popular uh, overseas, particularly uh, in Europe, uh, have no place in the management of, of uh, this problem. Uh, for early on osteoarthritis, if you're not going to do uh, some LRTI or variant thereof, <clears throat> I think the, the choices would uh, probably be an osteotomy uh, described by Wilson in the British Journal in uh, the mid-70s, 1974, uh, where you do uh, very little science. Uh, you do a dorsal radial wedge-shaped osteotomy through the base of the thumb metacarpal, and then uh, you uh, close, the, close the wedge and fix it with a combination of either circlage wires or K-pins, the idea being that in CMC arthritis, the anterior portion of the carpal metacarpal joint wears out first, and so you're redirecting forces uh, and kind of, uh, we got hyaline cartilage on hyaline cartilage rather than ebernated bone. Another procedure which uh, I don't do very frequently, but was very popular in the 80s, was the Eden-Littler procedure 
where a hemislip of distally-based FCR was brought in a palmar to dorsal uh, direction uh, through the uh, base of the thumb metacarpal and then uh, secured to itself uh, so as to prevent the subluxation. And Dr. Eaton, who was an incredibly uh, honest uh, reporter, uh, had outstanding results in, in uh, Eaton stage one, two, and even three osteoarthritis. So that would be another possibility. I, res I reserve, but I don't do that operation very often unless, for example, I have a person who had a CMC dislocation who's either loose or re-dislocating. If a patient had laxity, say, secondary to Ehlers-Danlos, I would do an arthrodesis to the CMC joint. And the, another option is, is fusion, and there are many, many techniques for stabilization, uh, including uh, plate fixation, cross K-pins, tension band, uh, and uh, memory, memory staples, ju uh, just to name a few. So uh, a, a lot of options. Uh, the arthrodesis, uh, well, why don't you show, I know what the next slide shows, so I'll make a comment after you show it, if that's okay, unless you have some questions. No, well, no, the only, uh, I have a, uh, just a comment, this is anecdotal, but if it's in, in, my, in my practice, when I've done the, the, um, the ligament reconstruction, uh, when there's arthritis present, even if it's relatively mild, uh, the patients still have pain. Their joint is stable, but it still hurts. So I think uh, the examples you uh, mentioned, like Ehlers-Danlos or post-dislocation uh, post instability, I think those are, those are great uh, indications. So this one for me, I, there's a little shelf in it. I don't know whether it projected well, but uh, it, it, it is subluxated in. Uh, her body's trying to stabilize the joint and uh, not doing such a great job at it. And LRTI is a great operation, except when it's not. And almost, almost everyone does does well, but sometimes they don't. And and she was a nurse at my hospital, and I just, you know, I feared seeing her in the PACU where she worked after uh, operating on her and having her be unhappy with this. She had very good MCP motion, uh, and so I ended up uh, doing this. And uh, you mentioned the the staples as uh, as an alternative. They're expensive, uh, but do not require hardware removal. Um, uh, uh, one paper I think you wrote uh, mentioned that the complication rate from plate fixation is pretty high. In fact, K-wire fixation may be better uh, than plates. This seems it's a more recent option uh, and it, it worked in this instance. Um, and this is her at about three months uh, after her surgery. And so to casually look at her, you wouldn't know that she has a CMC fusion. Um, and she's she's very happy with it. Um, yeah, so that's that's a uh, tremendous result, Chuck. I, I just uh, a couple things. Uh, one of the questions uh, that people ask about. So first of all, a a reasonably recent paper in JBJS uh, dumped all over arthrodesis. It was by Vermillion, and I think from the Netherlands. And uh, the bottom line was, it was a very well-designed study, level one study, uh, fusion versus excisional LRTI type of thing. And uh, if you wanna get something published in JBJS, do a level one study and then stop in the middle of the study because uh, one of the arms is doing terribly. And uh, that's a guaranteed publication for you. Anyway, they had two non-unions out of 17, and they prematurely uh, stopped the study. And that's always been the, the biggest criticism of arthrodesis uh, is uh, non-union. But the interesting thing, and the rate of non-union is about 10%. But the interesting thing is, is that many non-unions are radiographically problematic, but clinically they are minimally symptomatic. So uh, I still think this is a very reasonable option, uh, particularly for uh, a younger individual. Uh, and uh, you, you've got a terrific at least two-year result there. What, um, what would you say would be the youngest age that you would consider an LRTI or equivalent procedure, trapeziectomy procedure? I, I, would, I, I would do one... Uh, uh, probably 40 would be would be my cutoff. Uh, I, uh, some people will do an L, you know, you don't see unless it's post-traumatic, 
uh, and then you might lean towards effusion. You don't generally see uh, osteoarthritic uh, joints uh, much under the age of 40. I mean, they certainly occur, but so I would lean more towards effusion in someone in that age group. And I, we have follow-ups. I, I have follow-ups of patients uh, like the one that you showed earlier, uh, 25, 30 years that are, that are still doing well. Some of them will develop adjacent joint arthritis at the STT joint, but it, it's, a great, it's a great operation, great operation. Peter, uh, there was a, a question. Any any uh, thoughts on various tendons that you use for that transfer interposition, FCR versus uh, wrist extensor? Yeah, I so I don't think it matters. So first of all, uh, so prior to the real LRTI uh, that you know was uh, kind of espoused by Dick Burton. Uh, people, uh, Abe Frimson from Cleveland was balling up uh, the palmaris longus and putting it in the space, so-called anchovy. That's, he called it an anchovy. And if you look at the palmaris, and our palmarae are all different, it, like you could shout into the wound and say, echo, 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 echo. And even using the FCR or abductor longus uh, or a wrist extensor, I don't think you can come close to filling up that space. So I think that's hocus pocus dominocus, quite frankly. Uh, but uh, if you ask me what I do, uh, I use an, a counter to all evidence. So we have evidence-based medicine that says all you got to do is take the bone out. Do the original procedure described by Jervis in 1947. All you got to do is take the bone out. Uh, everybody seems to do some additional thing. And of course, now with the tightrope, uh, you know, uh, more uh, additional procedure, more complications, et cetera, et cetera. Some of it might be RVU-based, but I shouldn't say that cynically in a symposium like this. You know what I say? The best, the best place to hide a tendon is in the trapeziectomy uh, opening, because if you ever revise one, and you know, it, you can, it, looks like a, it looks like the tendon that you put in. You can un, unfurl it. You could use it for something else if you want. It doesn't really integrate. Yeah, so. I agree with you, Chuck. Uh, so you had mentioned uh, the metacarpal extension osteotomy. Just for those who haven't uh, seen this uh, technique, uh, this is an example, and it's uh, indicated, as you mentioned, for stage one and maybe maybe stage two. Yeah. Uh, okay. Change gears. Is it ever too late to do a carpal tunnel release? Uh, you know, all things being equal, I would say uh, never too late. Even people who... Uh, reach triple digits. I think it's reasonable now. It's, you don't do the carpal tunnel release to make uh, the uh, atrophy of the uh, thenar musculature go away. You, you would do it uh, basically for pain relief. They, have, they, they end up having a lot of, lot of pain and sometimes paresthesias at night. Uh, I think, and I think, you know, there are papers, uh, a lot of papers in the Journal of Hand Surgery which would support that contention. It's an incredibly easy procedure to do. It can be done under local in 10 minutes or so. I'm sure there are people that can do it faster than that, but speed kills. Uh, and so I think that uh, I think it's it's a reasonable thing to do, not to improve motor function. You know, if you want to improve motor function, you might consider a tendon transfer such as the Kamitz transfer using the uh, palmaris longus prolonged on a palmar fascia. It looks like, uh, Chuck, does this patient have an incision? Uh, I may be hallucinating. Yeah, right in there. Yeah, yeah, right there. I don't know what that was. But. Was that an old motor branch injury? It was a motor neurectomy incision, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. But I think, yeah. when, as you mentioned, when they have pain, especially night pain, if they have nerve irritability symptoms, they're so grateful. Yeah. Uh, sometimes patients, though, later, later the nerve just kind of dies, and it's not painful. It just doesn't work well, and they have trouble with uh, buttoning buttons, for example, or picking up coins. Uh, and definitely, but I think that's, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that's more uh, the sens sensory changes are occurring. They've got atrophy of, uh, I mean, exactly. 
the uh, the nerve is the, if you do an a real old old fashioned open carpal tunnel release, actually look at the nerve. I mean, you you will see true hourglass deformity. The nerve really really looks bad. Uh, but I I think it's the downside of doing a carpal tunnel release in general. I mean, we've all seen infections, we've all seen nerve injuries, stuff like that is pretty minimal. So particularly for patients that are having pain and night pain, uh, I, I think it's beneficial. Great. So that was a chip shot for you. This one's a little tougher. Is it ever too late to operate on cubital tunnel syndrome? Well, it, 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 it depends on what you're operating for. So uh, this patient, what you're showing me here, I think, or I'm sure you are, is there's atrophy of the first dorsal interosseus. There's clawing of the, uh, the uh, ring and small fingers. And so the question is, is what are you operating for? Are you operating because the patient is having experiencing pain in the ring and small fingers? Are you operating because they have motor dysfunction? They've got weakness of pinch, weakness of grip, inability to uh, make a fist, uh, unable to synchronously uh, flex their fingers down, uh, and or you know, is it a, is it a sensory issue? Uh, I would assume, uh, although. Uh, not definite that the compression, oh, this is cubital tunnel, so the compression is at the elbow. Having said that, uh, I certainly think that uh, patients that have long-term established cubital tunnel syndrome with both sensory and motor findings, or they've got uh, stiff uh, fingers, I think it's a waste of time to operate. And the most I can do for them, I, I don't think I can easily restore uh, sensibility. Uh, and the most I can do is either some type of uh, tendon transfers or uh, possibly if they've got fixed clawing, a, a, a arthrodesis uh, in a better position of the uh, fourth and fifth fingers. But uh, for longstanding cubital tunnel, mainly motor complaints, I would do uh, tendon transfers for pinch and grip. So to correct the clawing, I would want to try to correct the clawing. Uh, and uh, I would uh, do a tendon transfer for pinch, uh, which often with in my hands don't always work very well. I don't know and I should know, I'm out of it, uh, whether or not there are any good nerve transfers that you could do. So my answer after uh, verbal diarrhea is that it certainly can be too late to operate on cubital tunnel syndrome. So this is, uh, this was an interesting patient. She was a woman in her uh, 30s who had a tardy ulnar nerve palsy from a lateral condyle non-union and uh, she had uh, a fairly rapidly progressive ulnar neuropathy and um, and uh, someone did just an insight to decompression on her and uh, she that, didn't get it. that would be if you're taking your board exam this is really obnoxious okay if you were taking your board exam and they exam and I was your examiner I, I'd be I, I'd be tough on you for that uh, because, you know, the nerve is being stretched in a cubitus valgus position, and uh, you need to at least take the tension off the nerve. So it would seem to me that a uh, more appropriate procedure would be moving the nerve anteriorly, whether you go, you know, uh, subcutaneous, intra, or submuscular might be dealer's choice. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, that's honest. okay. You, I, you may not remember, but you were my board's examiner. Oh God! You were a, you were a softy actually. So one of my cases was a scapulothoracic fusion, and I have no idea what I was thinking doing that during my boards collection period. But you said that's cool. <laughs> How do you do that operation, Peter? And you were my it. boards so, examiner yeah. too. Well, you gotta be kidding! You gotta be kidding me! I'm, That's not how we got randomly picked to be the moderators, but uh. that is funny. And then I had I had a patient with necrotizing fasciitis who died, and I was all I was very worried because it was a patient from the VA back in the day, pre electronic medical record, and the, they were the notes were very sketchy. And you said you asked me what's my scrub side description of necrotizing fasciitis to a medical student, and I I answered, and we went on to the next patient. So you were a softie. 
Yeah, well, right. so, I think you probably knew your stuff pretty well. So, but back to this patient. So I did an ulnar nerve uh, transposition and- uh, having, I'm, I'm glad you didn't do it inside your no. Having read uh, some of Susan McKinnon's stuff, I did an end-to-side AIN to ulnar motor, trans, not transecting the motor uh, nerve, but an AIN to end-to-side. And okay. she, she recovered incredibly. You know, they, it said that they don't recover intrinsic uh, 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 muscle function or atrophy if they have atrophy to this degree she was young enough that she actually got back just about normal um, hand function but i don't know it was probably the, just the nerve transposition and not the not the uh, supercharge but yeah the i i'm i uh, you know again i'm not a neuroscientist i'm not susan susan mckinnon uh but the if everybody knows basically what what uh, Dr. Cassie's talking about is you uh, take the anterior interosseous nerve median innervated and you take it as far distal as you can and uh, in kind of mid substance of the pronator quadratus and then you join that end aside to the motor branch, the ulnar nerve. If you looked in a cross section of the ulnar nerve, the motor branch is deep and ulnar. And uh, I just think that's hocus pocus, but you have absolutely proved me wrong because I don't think your uh, success was based proximally. Uh, how fast do you remember did she recover? So th this is the story. So by the time she came back to the office for her first post-op visit, she had some intrinsic function. She had nothing before I operated on her. Wow. So obviously it was the transposition that, uh, yeah. that did the job. But Awesome. Uh, Next, okay, uh, we, we mentioned Dr. Ruby, um, one of my mentors with Dr. Belsky. True or false, this paper came out in 1985. Uh, he concluded that uh, a scaphoid non-union would uniformly result in arthritis if left untreated. I, I, I would have to say that it's more true than false. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll waft a little bit. I certainly, we certainly, uh, when we see a patient with, I saw a patient today with a scapegoat fracture, and one of the things that I think most orthopedic or orthopedic hand surgeons or whoever uh, would tell them that if this goes untreated, particularly uh, if there's uh, any displacement uh, or presence of a dissy posture, uh, that there's, uh, they're, they're going to eventually get arthritis. The key thing is, is with a snack wrist, and I think this, I think this is really important, and we wrote a paper on it a number of years ago, is that not everybody who has a horrible looking wrist is, is very symptomatic. They may have some minor problems, but they're living with it. For example, many patients that I've seen that have had a snack wrist with advanced arthritis, uh, will come in with carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, and you take an x-ray of their, yeah, like the 206 thing. You take an x-ray of it, and it's just, you, need a, you need a wrist fusion tomorrow, 2006. You need that fused. And they say, but my problem is I've got numbness and tingling in my fingers. And I think what happens is, is the carpal canal kind of biometrically decreases or rearranges. I, I have no proof of that. And uh, you end up doing a carpal tunnel release, and they have improvement in symptoms. You may not hit a home run. And they're perfectly comfortable living with this god-awful-looking wrist with carpal collapse and arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, here, you know, uh, look, at look at what's happened over this 30-year uh, period. The, the, the wrist has absolutely gone to pieces. Uh, so let me ask you, Chuck, in this patient, uh, did they come for a wrist fusion or a carpal tunnel or none of the above? So I met the patient in 2006 and he brought with him dutifully uh, x-rays, the old fashioned x-rays uh, that he had taken uh, of his wrist in 1974. He had two complaints. One is he wanted to know what the bump was um, at the base of his thumb in the radial styloid area. Mm -hmm. And the other was he had numbness in his hand. His wrist was fine. Yeah. I did so, a carpal tunnel release on him. Yeah. That was it. You're right on. Yeah. Well, thank you. The, the other thing is, the other thing you don't want to do, uh, so 
I don't think many hand surgeons uh, get x-rays on patients that have carpal tunnel syndrome. But uh, if they have reduced range of motion of the wrist uh, on physical examination, uh, it may be reasonable to get an x-ray to look for a slack or snack wrist. And if they have that dorsal radial swelling, uh, the worst thing you can do is a ganglionectomy. I guarantee you that in that situation, you will get to do another ganglionectomy. It's uh, very similar to if a person has a Baker's cyst and you don't address the uh, knee pathology, uh, you know, tear the medial meniscus posterior horn, uh, you're going to get to operate again. So uh, I like, I like the, your selection of operation here. Less is more, yeah. Um, but let's uh, let's move on to uh, management of a, uh, an acute or subacute uh, problem. So here, we concluded that they probably will, if it's if it doesn't heal, uh, run into trouble, but not always. Um, so this is a patient, sixteen, pain-free, non-tender after six weeks of casting. What, what do you think of the X-rays? Um, what do you think of the time uh, time of immobilization? And the plan? Uh, I think that the, uh, I think radiographically, they're, even though the patients, you know, young people don't do anything to get out of a cast, including take their cast off. And uh, I don't think this, I don't think this is healed. Uh, and I would be loath to let this person uh, leave the office, especially a 16 year old and presumably uh, a male, I would be very low to let that individual leave the office uh, in say a removable splint, a thumb spike splint or something of that nature. There's, there, you can easily see a fracture line. So I would, uh, I would continue, I would recommend uh, continuing a mobilization for fear that uh, the uh, fracture would uh, not unite and uh, over the ensuing long period of time, degenerative arthritis would probably develop. Uh, what's the role of CT in your practice, a patient like this? Okay, so for, uh, I generally use a CT to look uh, at uh, geometry. I look, I use CT to look for arthritis, adjacent joint uh, arthritis, etc., cetera, uh, humpback deformity, but it's uh, kind of a geometric thing. If I'm more concerned uh, with vascularity or making a diagnosis of a scapoid fracture, uh, I would uh, lean more towards an MRI. Uh, the big question, which we uh, briefly discussed uh, either last week or tonight, is, you know, when you see a patient and, you, you know, you take all kinds of views and everything looks healed and they're asymptomatic, do you get an x-ray? And, or I'm sorry, do you get a CT scan? And uh, for me, uh, I do not routinely get CT scans. I, I do take care of uh, the, some of the, the, the Bengals in Cincinnati and categorically uh, with a scapoid fracture, uh, they're gonna get, they get, they get instant, they get CTs every day. They, they use so much cross-sectional imaging and you know, they're, they're in a different category, certainly, than uh, certainly I am. So uh, pro athletes and high stakes individuals, uh, yes. But uh, if physical examination and a series of plain radiographs don't show a fracture line, uh, I'm, I'm not going to order a CT for, to assess for union. And the number, uh, the number that uh, I believe is quoted for people ask, well, how much of it needs, do you need to see trabecular bridging? And Greg Summerclamp uh, has pulled out of his derriere uh, 50%. Uh, I have no idea. I don't think there's any biomechanical studies to support it, but maybe somebody listening in can give me a reference and I can educate myself. We actually did a study um, with Dr. Ruby. It was a cadaver study where we incrementally cut uh, more and more through uh, scaphoids and tested them on an instron. And it turned out in the study that if, if, uh, if it was less, if we're going to translate it to healing, if it's less than 70% healed, it's only 30% as strong as a normal scaphoid. 
So pass out to read that. That's interesting. Which is pretty much like an open section defect. If you, mm -hmm. the way I remember it is a third, a third the same thing of a third, a hole, a third the diameter of the bone. It translates pretty well in that way. But this patient, I guess the, the feeling was that the patient, uh, the fracture was healed enough. Um, and then some uh, subsequent x-rays were obtained um, at 10 weeks. Okay, so, you know, here, uh, there, Houston, we have a little bit of a problem. So the proximal pole, uh, you know, again, is very difficult. Maybe a little tiny bit sporadic, may not be hard to say. There's categorically a resorption at the fracture site, uh, and you're starting to get, you know, kind of a sclerotic non-union. It's very difficult on the lateral view for me to uh, see for sure uh, the, uh, I think I can see the proximal and distal poles of the scapewood, but I would bet if you did CT scanning in the plane of the scapewood, you would, uh, you'd see a humpback deformity with some uh, uh, carpal collapse. I'm trying to look at the lunate and seeing uh, along the lines of carpal collapse, whether there's any extension of the lunate and uh, I'm not sure I can tell. Yeah, I think it, it is extended. Uh, that, that if you look at the capitate, the, Im the image quality on the lateral is not the best, but the capitate is mm -hmm. translated dorsally relative to the to the radius. Yes, yes. Yep. And so, yes, we did fix it. And I did put a bone graft in, actually, it had collapsed um, and, uh, through a volar approach. So, Chuck, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have you be the sage. Uh, you know, uh, it's a waste non-union. Uh, how do you decide whether you're going to go uh, top or bottom? Well, I, um, I think, I think, I, I think I know why you went, uh, why you went the direction you went, but I, I'm curious to know. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't think, um, we can reliably correct carpal collapse through a dorsal approach. Uh, at least I can't. And so, uh, and I feel more comfortable going volar, I think, uh, for, for waist fractures. For proximal pole fractures, uh, dorsal is the answer. And if you're using a, a headless screw with a continuously variable pitch like this, um, the purchase, or the if you want to call it compression, is much more at the trailing end. The translation, if you think of it like a gear, is much more on the trailing end than on the leading end. So you always want the screw to go from the smaller piece into the bigger piece. So then, the, it, so that makes the answer easy, except for waist fracture. So if it's a waist fracture. Um, and it's collapsed, I will go volar. If it's not collapsed, you could, I think you could argue going either way. Sure, great. Is that, is that the right yeah. answer? Um, yeah, I think. Did heck, I fail? Did I answer? No. <laughs> yeah, you're going to come back to Chicago to the Palmer House next year. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't vomit on me. No. <laughs> uh, I, 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 think it, I think it looks great. Uh, home run out of the park. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> In the uh, in the Corona uh, crisis, we watched uh, Monty Python in the Holy Grail, and it reminded me of a seminal paper, the Holy Grail, that I read in 1992 when I was on the hand service uh, by your friend uh, Dr. Telesnik and Dr. Cohen, um, and uh, concluded. And this is the only hard data we're going to present tonight, but uh, direct repair and capsulodesis, 24 out of 27 excellent results. Normal grip strength. The scaphoid angle was improved. The scaphoid lunate gap was corrected. Why can't that be replicated? Uh, I'm not sure I can give you an answer. I do have to do a little historical stuff. So Julio Telesnik uh, was really a uh, in the 70s, uh, 80s, and into the 90s was really a pioneer uh, in uh, all types of carpal instabilities. Mark Cohen. Uh, was at Harvard Medical School, I believe at the time, and he did an outside rotation or uh, out in California, and he hooked up with Telesnik, and so he's the one who really put together the series, uh, and he's now a shoulder, uh, I'm sorry, an elbow, primarily an elbow and hand surgeon uh, in Chicago, and Lavernia is a total joint surgeon in Florida. So uh, having said that, uh, I, I, I can't, I've never really, I've never asked Mark uh, how they got such 
such great results, but certainly in the 80s, in the early 80s, uh, this was a very, very common procedure. The antecedent procedure was the so-called Blatt capsulodesis, and that was even uh, more of a kind of uh, bogus uh, type of operation. And Dr. Blatt, again, reported outstanding results uh, he reported those at the Hand Society. Basically, he took some dorsal capsule uh, based approximately on a dorsal radial lip of the radius, and uh, he sutured it into the distal scaphoid so that rather than the scaphoid being vertical, uh, he uh, was able to bring it up into a more extended posture. Uh, there was nothing done to correct. He said you didn't need to correct the scapholunate uh, gap. Uh, and he showed videos at a hand society meeting and had really good results. That procedure also was fairly popular, but the scapulonate instability, uh, as I write into the sunset, uh, remains a very, very difficult problem. Many patients end up with kind of bad looking x-rays after all kinds of procedure, ligament weaves of many, many types, uh, but uh, they seem to function reason reasonably well. Maybe it's the hot poker treatment. Uh, you know, you've, you've hurt me enough, doctor. I don't want anything more done. But th these are, you know, these are great results. And uh, these are uh, certainly uh, Julio Tlesnik and Mark Cohen are extremely honest individuals. Very rarely have I seen a scapulunate. You're going to show it here. So, so this, this, uh, this patient in my hands would not do well with any type of repair, whether you uh, do, uh, you know, uh, Mel Rosenwasser would do a RASL procedure. Uh, um, in uh, Mississippi, Will, Will Geiser would put some uh, magical uh, screw in the scapegoat and lunate. Mark Ross over in Australia would uh, a tendon graft from scaphoid to lunate. I can't, I can't even drill one hole in a bone without fracturing it. Uh, to the triquetrum, others would do a variety of tendon reconstructions. Uh, I think most of them fall apart. And for someone who has a five millimeter gap and a 90 degree angulation and his lunate's almost looking at the moon there, uh, I, this patient in my hands, would get a salvage procedure. If I was at the Mayo Clinic, if they were nice enough to invite me to do a case up there like this, they would vomit if I did, if they did anything short, they, they're reconstructive ologists. I hope I'm not offending anybody. They believe that wrist motion is sacred and they will do anything to preserve all of the carpal bones. I would argue, extremely obnoxiously that wrist motion is overrated and forearm and finger motion are underrated. End of dictation. <laughs> I, I know you're gonna you're asking me to get off now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I want to know what the answer is. You said a salvage procedure, but the sage didn't come out with the what's the operation of choice for you? So believe it or not, even though I poo-pooed uh, carpectomy in a 30-year-old, I, I just uh, Chuck, I cannot see this operation working. I think I think I've seen that did that you did a great job on it through you know a, a Brunelli or something like that. But geez, a five millimeter gap—that's so oh my lord! I don't know how you can reduce that. Uh, it may be reducible in the operating room. Maybe if you pin it long enough, or you do the Rosenwasser procedure, which I've also dumped on. It didn't work in Cincinnati, and he's never let me forget that. Uh, I, I, I would do a carpectomy on this on this patient if they were symptomatic. Sorry. Yeah. That, um, yes. and I would get, and I, I guess the other thing critical to get an X-ray of the other wrist critical. Uh, there are lots of people who you know have some type of. Uh, defect in their collagen. And uh, it's amazing the number of patients in my lifetime that have had operations for scapulonate instability and the opposite wrist looks the same. So you did a Prunelli, you have a beautiful correction here. And in Cincinnati, if you referred this patient to me for follow-up care and I took the pins out, say, two months later, 
three months later, yeah. things would fall apart. Yeah, I think uh, I, a couple of uh, points that you raised. One is, uh, you know, how whether this is really an acute injury, and as patients get older, we we are concerned um, that they, you know, they may have had a prior injury that they just dismissed as just a wrist sprain, and this really was an acute injury, and thankfully did okay. And the second is for me, I think of it more like a list frank injury, um, and I agree, I would leave the pins in for a long time, and except some stiffness. Um, and so this is a year post-op, and you can see uh, this lost a little bit of the uh, scaphalunate angle. Scaphoid flexed slightly, but it's uh, he's not in DC, and uh, he he did well. Lost some wrist flexion, yeah. but but did well. Very impressive, um, Jeff. Do you have any uh, burning questions? Well, Peter, I was going to ask, and I, I agree. I I am inclined to do a salvage as well. I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on. You, you said PRC. Uh, there is a little bit of a school of thought of you know maybe in a younger patient, uh, something like a midcarpal arthrodesis, four corner fusion, or capitalunate fusion. What are your thoughts on those I in think, a younger patient? I think uh, I think that's actually I think that's a better choice. Uh, I think a four corner fusion or just a capital lunate fusion would be a better choice in this, in this situation in a 30-year-old. Uh, I had a little brain attack there, but I, I agree with you, Jeff. I think that would be, a, that would be my preferred uh, procedure. The only problem with four-corner, I think four, the problem with four-corner fusions, in my opinion, is that uh, it's gotta be done right, and you have to get, you have to really have good carpentry, work on the capital lunate, uh, particularly the capital lunate joint. And if you can get good cancellous bone on good cancellous bone, regardless of what technique you use, whether, whether it's staples, cape pins, circular plate, whatever, uh, you're going to have, and, and you're able to obtain, pardon me, a reduction of the lunate, you're going to have a happy patient by and large. The problem is, is that oftentimes we don't get a great reduction or we end up with a uh, non-union or some type of hardware related problems and then things go south. But if you can get a solid fusion in a reduced lunate, I think those patients long-term, if you match them one-to-one -one with patients that had a carpectomy, I think long-term, and uh, there aren't series at the 20-year level yeah, uh, I think the, the four corner fusion is gonna win the race. If you look at the current day literature, uh, there's literature, a lot of literature from Andy Tischer, uh, <clears throat> from uh, Salt Lake City, uh, Kevin Chung has written on it. it. When they compare four corner fusion uh, to proximal carpectomy, uh, carpectomy uh, is winning the race uh, in terms of economics, uh, complications, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, a lot of literature, which gives uh, kudos to the carpectomy. But I think in this case, in a young patient, my choice would be a four-corner fusion, Jeff. All right. I think I'm just gonna show you this case. And the question is, how could this possibly have happened to this poor person? But the real question uh, to answer is, what do you do about a failed DARA? So this patient has, you can see, a, pre a previous wrist fusion and radio ulnar impingement with some scalloping uh, on the ulnar side of the radius that had a, a couple of operations, short, shortening and then shorter. Yeah, this, uh, so I'm a big fan of the DARA procedure. Most people hate it, uh, but uh, it's a procedure that was, uh, it's over a century old. It was described by Dara, who is the Dean at Columbia Medical School uh, in 1912, I believe, and, and it's still around. It, I think it's a reasonable operation uh, for sure in rheumatoids, uh, but we don't see a lot of rheumatoids anymore, but uh, it's, it's a very good operation in rheumatoids, and it's not a bad operation in older patients that have a distal radius fracture treated non-operatively where you got radius shortening and a prominent ulnar head uh, with uh, ulnar abutment into the, into the carpus. The problem, as has been pointed out, there's a great quotation, uh, and I can't give you the source by Jim Dobbins from the Mayo Clinic, and uh, he, uh, once you have a failed DARA, that, that's, that's a big problem. 
And it is very, very, very difficult to salvage that. Here you can see, as you pointed out, the little notch on the uh, ulnar aspect of the radius where there's uh, convergence of the unstable ulnar head, not, not only radioulnarly, but probably dorsal palmarly. Uh, and that's very difficult to uh, correct. There, there uh, Dean Soterianos uh, from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, would interpose uh, fasciolata to keep the bones separated. Uh, there are a variety of tendon transfers that, that have been done. And, uh, but the, the, the thing that probably works the best in this very difficult situation uh, is uh, an implant, uh, Dr. Shecker, who will be uh, your next speaker. The problem with the implant, and I, Dr. Shecker is probably one of the nicest people you ever met him, and he is just uh, a prince, and he is passionate about this damn implant. So you gotta be a little careful, uh, but uh, in this situation, uh, it it's definitely a bailout. A one-bone forearm uh, is a fairly debilitating, uh, fairly debilitating uh, operation, but would also uh, be an option if you're not familiar with the implant, uh, you know. Uh, so I think, you know, interposition, uh, soterianus operation, implant arthroplasty, ligamentous stabilization, I don't think would work, uh, uh, or one, one bone uh, forearm, which is, which is fairly debilitating. Losing forearm rotation, with a wrist that is fused. Generally, uh, you're not supposed to do, or the recommendations are with a one, one bone forearm that you do not do this procedure if the wrist is stiff, uh, i.e. a fused wrist or the elbow is stiff. You wanna have uh, flexion extension of the wrist and elbow because you lose all rotation. What about taking more ulna? Okay, so the Scott Wolf operation. So Scott Wolf and about eight or nine other people contributed to it. And uh, basically what he said is you do an extended DARA procedure and you can take up to, uh, I believe, uh, one third uh, of the of the ulna. Uh, and uh, so it looks like this patient has already partially had the Scott Wolf operation. You probably could take a little bit more, uh, and but I, I, I don't think it's going to work. I think this patient, uh, sadly, and I have no idea how they got from a, a reasonably well-reduced risk to uh, freaking fusion and shortened ulna, but uh, that's what makes our specialty so great. This was a challenge. So uh, she had an attempted uh, one bone forearm radius on ulna. Um, and about two weeks after her surgery, uh, she f heard a crack, like a tree falling, she said, um, and, uh, and had this. And so she came to me with a fixator on um, and uh, uh, lots of questions. Um, and so, uh, because of the sake, uh, for the sake of time, I, I just try to simplify it and just fix the radius. Um, and I was hoping that that would be sufficient and wouldn't have to address the radial ulnar impingement, but she continued to have symptoms. Uh, and I did that operation that you had just mentioned, which is a prelude to next, to next week, two weeks from now. Uh, can, you, can you just go back, Chuck? I want to ask you a qu an ethical question. Yes. So she, she, she go back one more. Uh, she comes to you with these x-rays, and she said, uh, my dad is an orthopedic surgeon, and he's not sure this one-bone forearm operation was done correctly. Uh, could you comment on the uh, plate fixation and uh, whether or not bone graft was used? Uh, I don't know whether bone graft was used. So there are two, uh, two techniques uh, for uh, of, well, there are several, actually, several techniques for radius to uh, forearm fusions. You could leave the space, the uh, interosseous space, and put a graft that bridges the two bones, uh, and that would historically was with iliac crest. Um, you can converge the ulna into the radius, um, which, I, which I've done. I like that, especially if they've had a prior distal ulnar resection, and you get a broad surface area with multiple interfragmentary screws, uh, or the third is this radius on ulna, where uh, 
the surgeon attempted to, uh, as you can see on the image on the right, put the distal radius on the shaft of the ulna, and there's a lot of stress uh, in doing that. And the plate was short, and the screws were eccentric. I think they they were uh, at least a couple were unicortical screws or transcortical screws, and uh, just po uh, popped off. Uh, yeah. But I think you're you're absolutely right about the the prior wrist fusion. I would say is a relative contraindication to do a one bone forearm and. Um, uh, that was probably not the best idea. Yeah, but uh, there, there's no end to the number of uh, operations that a surgeon can do on a patient uh, in certain yeah. circumstances, and that's sort of the path that was uh, that was taken in this yeah. instance. But I, I think the other thing, the the best article I think even today was written. Uh, it's out of Mayo Clinic by someone named Peterson, is the lead author, and uh, the. You know, these are, regardless of whether you do any one of the three operations which you mentioned, uh, there's about a 30% non-union rate. Now they had, they did them for a variety of reasons, infection, trauma, whatever. I, I think they did a one bone forum and an ulnar aplasia case, but the bottom line is that uh, this is not always a slam dunk operation. And certainly in my opinion, the loss of forum rotation is very debilitating. And this, uh, I think that this implant was a good uh, bailout, but uh, she is only 30 years old. So I don't think it's the end of the road uh, uh, for her uh, with respect to this, but short term, she's happy. Yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful savage. But I think, alas, I think we've run out of time. Jeff, are there any outstanding questions? Peter, there was a question on your, your thoughts of Adara for someone with a radial malunion that's relatively well aligned, but just results in ulnar positive uh, variant. I think, uh, so I've, we've looked up our cases with that and they, uh, in general, the in older people, people that look like me and worse, uh, that's a reasonable thing to do. I, I would say that in a relatively sedentary individual over the age of 50, it's, it's very reasonable. It's a very, very simple operation. But unfortunately, as Chuck pointed out, sometimes they just don't work. And in that case, the salvage procedures are pretty big leap. Right. Thanks, Chuck. Those are great cases. Yeah, that was, Chuck, uh, kudos. I mean, th those are great cases uh, for discussion. And you were, uh, Chuck was very kind. He let me look at the cases beforehand so I wouldn't look like a complete buffoon. Uh, thank you for putting them yeah, together. Those were great comments. I want to thank you, Dr. Stern, uh, for taking the time. Always great to see you. And uh, Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. Great, awesome. great pearls of wisdom. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thank Jeff. you, Jeff and Chuck. Appreciate it.